The talk tonight is about living with respect or the inner bow of the heart. The Buddha said that it is difficult to be a human being. (laughs) Even though life isn't so easy, what we're doing here on retreat is developing an experiential understanding of how life is. The understanding that we're developing is that we're not independent and we're not dependent, but interdependent. We're not these separate, alienated beings. We see that this feeling of being separate is uh, It's because we don't have this development of awareness or mindfulness with understanding that we perceive ourselves as separate. <clears throat> it's difficult to be a human being even though everything that takes birth passes away and even though we live with this dukkha or vulnerability that we never know what's going to happen, we can learn by paying attention with mindfulness and by developing metta. Uh, We can learn to live our life with a respectful heart, a reverent mind. Living with respect means that we live with this awareness of mindfulness, which is awareness with understanding. The metta practice helps us to soften around anything that's happening. It's when we have this feeling that it's okay. One of the ways that we can see what the Buddha said, that it's difficult to be a human being, in the Buddhist cosmology, there's 31 planes of existence. And the human being is not um, considered to be so developed. Where uh, we only have four below us. You know, <laughs> and that's just sort of a helpful perspective, I think. <laughs> you know, I always think, no wonder it's like this. You know, it's really, you know, we are in this realm where there's this vast mixture of joy and sorrow of pleasure and pain. And it's so hard for us to come to terms with this, but it is what we take birth into. We're not on the top, (laughs) so to speak. Uh, And there's supposed to be six deva realms above us and 20 brahma realms. Uh, And the human realm is just this one tiny speck in this vast, you know, realm of beings. It's amazing. What I consider to be the climax of living with respect is to deeply understand our uh, relationship with all beings, to understand that we live in this vast family of beings, that we are related. The experience of respect or an inner bow from the heart means that we can uh, appreciate the importance of understanding 
our relationship with all beings. When we live with respect, we live with a deep meaning or purpose in life. And that meaning and purpose brings great happiness. So in this talk, I'd like to talk about our own relationship to bowing, whether it's an inner bow or an outer bow. Uh, I'd like to talk about a more traditional Asian perspective on bowing or devotion uh, and how the development of faith in a a culture that isn't Buddhist, uh, how this development of faith happens for us in the West. How the development of understanding occurs in this practice deeply affects our ability to live in this world with reverence, with integrity and dignity. Sometimes it's helpful to get in touch with our deepest wish to be free from the perception of being a separate self, our deep wish to be free from self-centeredness, If our deepest wish is to be free from seeing ourselves as separate, then learning to live with respect is a really valuable practice. Ultimately, living with respect helps us to live a life uh, of sila, where we're appreciating that we don't really want to harm ourselves or harm others. It's the, living with respect is like the fulfillment of understanding that we're not separate. Reverence is a deep expression of inner wisdom. An inner bow or an outer bow is a kind of gesture of surrender to life just as it is. It's a letting go of a personal self. Uh, And this is a gesture of humility with no inherent selfhood in it. The more we develop wisdom, which is this understanding that there isn't this separate personal self, uh, the more we can live with an attitude of surrender to life as it is. Last year, I was reading a book about this time by, Larry, by Barry Lopez called Arctic Dreams. Barry Lopez is a, an American writer, a naturalist, an environmental writer. He wrote the book after spending many months exploring the Arctic. And I was impressed because he started the book and ended the book Uh, by talking about bowing. So right in the first page, he said, I took to bowing on my evening walks. I would bow slightly with my hands in my pockets toward the birds and the evidence of life in their nests. 
because of their fecundity, unexpected in this remote region, and because of the serene arctic light that came down over the land like breath, like breathing. It's such a wonderful Western way to bow. I would bow slightly with my hands in my pockets. (laughs) So why don't we bow that way here? You know, this, this way in which he described bowing really affected me and, and had me thinking about how bowing affects us in the West. And so first I'd like to talk about the bowing from a Buddhist perspective or a traditional devotional perspective. The Pali word that we use for bowing which you probably haven't heard that often, is Anjali. Anjali means to stretch forth or draw out or extend. Anjali means um, the experience of respect for something or someone. And it's, it means that this experience that we have of respect for something or someone draws us out of ourselves. It pulls us up. It's meant to be a gesture of uplifting our hearts. So it's a physical gesture, but if it's done with understanding, it's meant to deeply affect the heart. So the bowing is lifting us up, stretching us up, pulling us out of ourselves, meaning that it's pulling us out of our self-centeredness. It lifts up our minds. Anjali, meaning that we're raising our hands as a sign of respect, is sometimes described as just putting our ten fingers together and raising these fingers to our head. And that if it's done with dignity, it's meant to bring respect to ourselves as well as respect to what we're paying respect to. Anjali has a lot of meanings. Anjali also means that which is worthy of being respected. Traditionally, it was um, the way in which one often had this experience of respect was bowing to the community of monks or nuns because their renunciation was considered to be worthy of respect. Sometimes we don't understand what this kind of bow means. It doesn't mean that we're bowing to a personality when we bow to a monk or nun. It means that we're bowing to the difficulty that the robes represent in terms of the deep renunciation it takes to be a monk or nun, to follow the precepts. So when we bow, it means it's supposed to mean that we understand what we're bowing to and that what we're bowing to is worthy of respect. And the last meaning of Anjali is bowing means that we're making an offering. 
And if we actually do the physical act of bowing, it means we're making an offering with our whole being, with our heart, with our mind, with our body. So it's this amazing fullness of an offering of respect to that which is worthy of being respected. Bowing happens not just in Asia, but it it happens among many native tribes on the planet. It seems to be a natural way for many human beings to greet each other. It might not be uh, always the same, but often there'll be some movement of the hands and a greeting in terms of respect. This this summer, I was invited to teach at Tassajara, a Zen retreat community in California. It's the center that Suzuki Roshi started. Suzuki Roshi wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And they have a tradition there of bowing to each other as you walk by each other. And in the summer, there's about 180 people there. So there's a lot of people to bow to. And at first, I was so impatient with it. You know, I'd go out of my room and have to bow about, you know, 25 times just to get a cup of tea. And 25 more times to get back to my room. And that was just before I even had my tea. It was at first awful, you know. And then after I started appreciating what we were doing, uh, it was so beautiful to bow, you know, just to think if you were here for this three months and every time you went by somebody, you bowed, you know, it, it's a lot. <laughs> uh, and it's a very beautiful practice. It reminds us, you know, that we are all worthy of respect. It's uplifting. There's a great Tibetan Buddhist teacher named San Kapa, who was the founder of the Galupka school that the Dalai Lama now heads. And just, just get a sense of this. Just as a pr- preliminary for his retreat, he did 35 sets of 100,000 prostrations. Just as a preliminary. You know, just before he even started the wisdom or concentration practices. You know, we're quite lucky, actually, you know, that we don't have to do something like that and we can just jump in. Suzuki Roshi uh, said that one of his teacher's forehead had a huge callus on it from bowing and touching the floor with his head. And he said that bowing is a very serious practice. You should be prepared to bow even in your last moment. When you cannot do anything except bow, you should do it. This kind of conviction is necessary. Bow with the spirit and all the precepts, all the teachings are yours, and you will possess everything within your big mind. 
Suzuki taught that the result of bowing wasn't the point, but it was that effort to liberate ourselves that was valuable. When I first started to do this practice, I had never been to Asia, and I still haven't been to Asia. And when I first started uh, being a student of Asian teachers, I didn't understand bowing. I was able to do it, although some people aren't in our culture able to do it. Uh, And for me, We used to always bow at the end of sittings uh, to the teacher, and I used to like it so that I could get up and move. You know, that was, (laughs) it was the physical exercise that I appreciated. I didn't have any other, um, it didn't have much impact for me other than that I liked to get up and move. But over time, especially when I would see Deepama, a teacher from Calcutta, and Upandita, There were other teachers that came and went, but those two particularly, when they would bow to the Buddha, there would be such a a sweetness, you know, and just this feeling of respect, such deep respect that would just permeate the air. It's hard to put it into words, but it was like a transmission of such deep respect, and it, it was for the teachings for the liberation possible for all beings, for the teachings. With Upandita, there's such a um, feeling in the air of his respect for Sila. He really holds that space. You know, it's just, <laughs> you know, he just totally holds the space of Sila. And it's quite, um, it feels very, beautiful and safe to be in that atmosphere of such a deep respect for it and valuing. When I was at Tassajara this summer, it was such a different tradition for me to be around. I've never been around a Zen tradition, and it probably was good that I wasn't and I didn't start there <laughs> because it was so formal. I probably wouldn't have gotten past the doorway. Uh, so th- when you're a student at Tassajara, there's a whole training of just how to get in and out of the hall. And you, you, know, you have to put your shoes a certain place, and uh, one walks in the, the door with a certain foot, and then one walks a certain way around the Buddha to one's place, and one bows a certain way, one sits a certain way, uh, and there's no, you know, little, <laughs> extra little pieces of foam. <laughs> you know, there's just this one zafu, there's no coats, no blankets. Uh, it's just very bare bones. It doesn't look like this kind of retreat at all. <laughs> I actually had a, a Zen student this summer where I was teaching in British Columbia, and she, you know, she, you could tell she was sort of getting used to Vipassana, you know, with all these strange outfits that people had and uh, cushions. And halfway through the retreat, somebody came in with a lawn chair. <laughs> At the end, she said, I just have to go back and tell my Zen teacher about this. You know, it was just so beyond belief. 
you know, that somebody could bring in a lawn chair, you know, to <laughs> it was just a chair, you know, but they don't have chairs. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> there's a whole ritual as a student at Tassajara to get in and out of the hall, but I didn't know there was a whole ritual as a teacher to get in and out of the hall. So my friend who invited me there, Ed Brown, gave me an hour rehearsal of how to get in the hall. And uh, it starts 10 minutes before the talk where somebody meets you outside of the hall and we do a little prayer out there and the person walks behind you and they carry your talk with reverence and you know it just sets up this whole atmosphere of seriousness way before you even get in the hall. And then you walk along and there's a certain place you put your feet, your shoes and then a certain person you bow to and they ring a special gong. This is 10 or 15 minutes and then you get in the hall and it's unbelievable. I mean, it's like you, you go around the Buddha three times and then offer a prayer twice and put the incense to your head and with a certain finger and this happens several times and then several prostrations and then around the Buddha several more prostrations, a few more prayers and then there's a certain way <laughs> you walk to the seat and by that time my heart was just boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and there's like 120 people in black just sitting there <laughs> waiting uh, and when it <laughs> And then there's a certain way to sit, and it's endless. And so when I had the rehearsal, I sat there, you know, after doing it, and I said to Ed, gee, you know, I hope I remember all this. <laughs> and he said, now do you want to learn how to get out? <laughs> I couldn't believe it, you know, it was a whole other rehearsal, how to get out, it was, you know. <laughs> What I finally realized that if you have any doubt, bow. You know, it's just, <laughs> if you forget anything, just make a few bows. Keep walking. <laughs> and it was such a different atmosphere than I was used to. Uh, but I realized in, in going through it that there was a power in the ritual, in terms of this incredible reverence for the teaching. You know, the whole way in which, you know, even the way that this woman carried my talk, or in the way that they um, have this ritual, it's all to sort of help us have this reverence for, for the teaching. Uh, and it was powerful. I thought that, uh, again, I was it's not something that I would want to be in all the time because for me it felt too formal, but I thought we all have a lot to learn from each other. If we're raised in a Buddhist culture, usually there's a lot of bright faith that we're, we just naturally have. There's a bright faith in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, remembering that the bright faith is different than the verified faith. The Manindraji is a teacher from India that always used to say, just have a mind like a child when you do the practice. Just 
just have a mind like a child. And when we have this kind of bright faith, it's easier to just do the practice without any doubt, you know, without any question. You just do it, and that's it. But in the West, there's usually so little faith that there's a lot of fear in regard to doing the practice, to be able to have this suspension of disbelief, it's called. Often we want to intellectually figure things out ahead of time before we do them. Uh, And it's kind of tricky to just be able to keep going in the practice because there's not always that bright faith that's natural in the West, in the East. In Asia, usually the first talks that are given are on generosity, long series of talks on generosity at a retreat, and then a long series of talks on sila. And understanding wisdom is stressed way down the way. Uh, but in the West, <laughs> if we talked for you know, weeks about generosity and sila and didn't talk about understanding, you know, it, would, it just wouldn't work. It's, it's understanding is what usually brings the Westerners to the practice. So it, it'll, it's different. In the Sangha in Honolulu, it's a very rich mix of people. There's, it's part Polynesian, part Asian, and part um, Western. And we have a Sunday sitting at a Vietnamese family's home. Uh, this family, they were the last people out of Saigon uh, before the communists took over Saigon. They, they're very interesting people. And there, there's this feeling of generosity in being around them. And I've learned a lot about generosity by living around them. And the thing that I was struck by over the years is that when they give, I can see that they don't go through the thought process. It's just, they just see something and they just go, poop. You know, it just, it, 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 there isn't that hesitation. Or, you know, like in the West, it's always like, should I? You know, I wonder. It's, there's this thinking that happens. And it's so, it's so visceral. It's a, quite a different experience to be around that, just going through the heart, just responding from the heart, responding from the heart. And I feel really grateful to be around that ease with the generosity. Several years ago, there was a center built in New Zealand. And this man that uh, started it was afraid to put a Buddha statue in the hall because he thought nobody would come or like it. You know, in New Zealand, they weren't used to Buddhism. So he put some native trees in the, on the altar instead of a Buddha. And we, we opened the center, and it was everybody was standing when we came in. Uh, Stephen and I came in, and uh, we were all standing. And this one Asian man in the course came in one minute late, and he kind of rushed in, stood at his place, and just 
looked at where the Buddha was supposed to be, but wasn't, and just bowed three times on the floor, didn't bat an eye, and then sat down. And it was, it was so refreshing to me. He didn't even need a Buddha statue there. It was just so natural. Uh, it's these things, I feel, are very inspiring to see or experience. The traditional way that people often bow to the Buddha is by taking refuge, by taking refuge in the Buddha, by taking refuge in the Dhamma, by taking refuge in the Sangha. And for some people that will mean taking refuge in the Buddha would mean taking refuge, that there was actually a historical person that was a human being like all of us and that was able to wake up from sleep. You know, the, one of the meanings of Buddha is waking up from a deep sleep. So the, that historical Buddha, the real person, symbolizes for people that potential for us all to wake up. Other people will bow to the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha. Or other people might have a deep understanding that we're not separate from the Buddha and that we bow to the wisdom and compassion in all beings, including ourselves. These are just a few ways in which people bow to the Buddha. And it's, it's important to find one's own relationship to this. Bowing to the Dhamma often means for people bowing to freedom or bowing to truth and bowing to Sangha. Uh, one, just one thing to think about is just to imagine doing this on your own. And if you could imagine that, maybe you wouldn't bow to Sangha, but it's pretty hard to imagine being on the path of awakening in an isolated way. So bowing to Sangha often means to that real sense of support and safety that the Sangha bring. It's amazing how we all affect each other in the practice. You know, when you're having a hard time, it's so nice to just see other people practicing and keep inspired. How many people would be sitting and walking as much as you do if no one else was here? You might take a few more naps. (laughs) It's hard. So sometimes it's recommended to start a sitting by taking refuge. Uh, And this bowing is meant to be supportive or uplifting. It's meant to help us have the inspiration to actually practice and to have the faith in it. And for some of us it might be too formal, uh, but it's helpful to remember why one would start a sitting that way and to find ways for ourselves to create that inspiration. What we're doing on a retreat is creating a sacred space. It's a place where we have a container to help us develop this awareness with understanding. And bowing 
is supposed to help us remember that that's what we're doing. So anything that helps us remember is useful. Mindfulness is all about respecting ourselves and respecting each other. The awareness with understanding happens with the heart that connects with life moment by moment. Our human life is so short. Each moment is happening so quickly. When we have an understanding of how short this human life actually is, we'll start to see how each moment is so precious, that this gift of life is so precious. The mindfulness is helping us not miss our life. One thing that touched me very deeply at Tassajara is that they had an altar in the kitchen and an altar in the office, an altar in the maintenance uh, room. And there was a real emphasis on the cooking for the yogis or shopping for yogis or helping the students in any way was a way to purify the mind. And even when one went in for a bath, you know, there was a sign that said, you know, removing the dust from our body helps us remove the dust from our mind. And there was a sense there, you know, of remembering that everything that we do is the practice. And there was a a lot of support for the staff to be aware that what they were doing was liberating themselves, that it wasn't something less equal to what the yogis are doing, but just as equally liberating. And it's important for us to remember this here and to remember it when we leave, that anything that we do with mindfulness and respect is, is liberating for us. So I've talked a lot about bowing from a more Asian or devotional uh, perspective. So I'd like to talk a little bit about bowing from a more Western perspective. Because some of us aren't so devotional or some of us don't connect with bowing, we may not feel it or we might not want to do it, and that's okay. For some people, bowing will feel like it's an act of self-deprecation or a kind of submissiveness or that it even can feel humiliating. And it's not meant to be that, but if it does, I wouldn't recommend (laughs) doing it. (laughs) You know, it's okay if you don't bow physically. Sometimes a person might feel like it's threatening or there'll be a feeling of like a loss of self uh, that's not so positive. It might be fearful. But I'd like to suggest that wherever we are with the practice of bowing, that we start where we are. So it's important to ask ourselves, what is, what is it that we do respect? In the West, this is a very important question. You know, what is it that we do have any reverence for? 
And if we have something that we have reverence for, to have at least an inner bow to that. And that bow that Barry Lopez did with his hands in his pockets is an example. To remember Anjali means that the gesture of respect is actually uplifting for ourselves, for our hearts. In my early years of meditation, I wasn't able to bow to the Buddha. I couldn't, it just didn't touch my heart in any way. It didn't, it didn't have a connection for me. But whenever there would be flowers on the altar, it was so easy for me to bow to the flowers because I had such a long history of connection with flowers. For me, my early years of my life where the human world seemed very unsafe and difficult, and my first friends were flowers and trees. So when I would come in the hall and see flowers, it would remind me of you know, these friends that I had and flowers can be a representation of the opening that happens on the practice. They can represent the courage to look deeply. There are so many. We might be able to bow to the chickadees that are in the back here in the forest that, can, that eat out of our hand. Or we might bow to chick, the chipmunks or the funny dogs that come through. <laughs> the one that likes to jump. <laughs> or then maybe we can bow to the moon or the sun or the beautiful leaves. It doesn't have to be to a Buddha. relationship to bowing, it's helpful to remember that we also like to be respected. You know, I've been talking about bowing to something. Children need to have respect. We need to have the feeling of being listened to with awareness. Um, This is what we want to be esteemed. And it's helpful to ask what is it that we'd like to be respected for? And what do you want to be remembered for? Often, you know, if you look at what you respect in others, it might be kindness, or it could be humor, or it could be some kind of inner beauty uh, that expresses some kind of sila, thoughtfulness, wisdom. If we receive genuine respect, it often means that the respect is coming from an inward, uh, it's, it's coming from a person that has an outward manifestation of some inner quality that we respect. It reflects an inner understanding. When I left home, I took a vow to watch every sunrise and sunset for some years. That was my practice. And sunrises and sunsets take a lot longer than one would think. 
you know, I would think I was just going out for a few minutes, but over the years it kept extending to longer and longer periods of time. One of the things I learned from that was patience. Then I um, raised my sister's children for some time, and I used to think that they should come with me. So I used to take the three children down to this dump down on Cape Cod uh, every day to watch the sunset. Sometimes children don't have the same appreciation for patience that an adult might. And I remember dragging my nieces and nephew to the <laughs> sunset day after day for a long time, you know, years. And finally my niece said one day, Oh, Michelle, it's just another sunset. <laughs> it's one of the funniest moments of my life. It was like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> she wasn't having the same kind of joy in this experience <laughs> that I was. We often do this to children. We think that we're helping them so much, but really we're just doing what we want to do. Uh, <laughs> So sometimes what I like about retreat is that we get to appreciate repetition. And often in our daily life, we're so busy, we don't get to appreciate, to take the time to see a sunrise. Like this morning, the sunrise was just beautiful and and happened in such a long period of time. But when we're in our daily life, we don't get to experience darkness and how long night is. Or we maybe don't get to experience really washing our hands or washing our face. In the Vipassana practice, you're just going through what's happening over and over and over and over. It's this lovely uh, repetition. And I love that my niece said, it's just another sunset. And in her life, she'll have to come to terms with that, too. You know, it's just another sunset. It's just another breakfast. It's just another breath. And then when there's mindfulness, you know, we cut through that. Not another breath. Not another sitting. Or whatever. The Buddha said, Thus must you train yourselves. We will be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. It's not only to appreciate the warmth of the sun or the the water that the rain brings or the food from the earth. Maybe we say a grace before our meals. Thich Han suggests that people say a gata, some simple verse before eating a meal. And one of the loveliest of his gatas is, in this plate of food, I see the entire universe supporting my existence. If everyone said that before their meal, In this plate of food, I see the 
entire universe supporting my existence. And it helps us to remember to take the time to appreciate the gift of life. Now, food in our body is just this recycled earth, air, fire, water. So maybe we don't bow to the Buddha, or maybe we don't bow to monks or nuns, and maybe we can bow to the wisdom or compassion in others or ourselves or all beings. Maybe we can bow to someone's expression of sila or wisdom, or bow to whatever strengths are there. Or maybe we can bow to something in nature that touches us. uh, Henry David Thoreau, who lived nearby, said, when I die, you will find swamp oak written on my heart. Swamp oak is one of the most beautiful oaks that grows along usually riverbanks, has a very wide, branches. And just to think what that means to say something like that. When I die, you will find swamp oak written on my heart. You know, that is his Buddha. Or he said, white pine is the emblem of my life. White pine is the emblem of my life. There's so many ways in which we can experience this respect. We can bow to trees. We can bow to dust. Even when we're having a hard time, maybe we're having extreme aversion or extreme attachment. We can bow to that. It's possible to bow to our defense system and not take it personally. I'm amazed sometimes how when we do this practice, we have this great desire to open, and then we lose respect for our, our defense system that we developed in our life. And our defense system is what's kept us sane in this difficult human world. And when we start to practice, then we just want to throw it out the window, <laughs> and our system will freak out. It's like our system won't feel safe at all when we don't respect the defense system. So the practice is one of gradually replacing the defense system with mindfulness, with care, with compassion. It's not that you can just rip the petals open, throw out the defense system, and that's it. So in some ways, to have this attitude of respect for something that has done you so well, but maybe we don't need so much anymore. We gradually need it less and less as we replace it more and more with mindfulness. The mindfulness is what protects us instead of the defense. So we can bow to our way of surviving and to say thank you and gradually let go of it. Gradually. 
there's a quotation from Suzuki Roshi that speaks a lot about this patience it takes to do this practice. After you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Catch that one? (laughs) After you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Even though you try very hard, the progress you make is always little by little. It is like going out in a shower in which you know when you get wet. In a fog, you do not know you are getting wet. But as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you may say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually, it is not. When you get wet in a fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself, so there is no need to worry about progress. It is like studying a foreign language. You cannot do it all of a sudden, but by repeating it over and over, you will master it. It's good to remember. (laughs) That's the joy of repetition. When I had this great car accident this year that I described last night, it was kind of a hard teaching. And Steve and I have this big old car. You know, it's old and it's huge and it's like a tank. And over the years, my complaints about it kept increasing almost daily. Whenever I would have to go out and drive it and park it, in Honolulu, parking is... um, The parking spaces are very small. So I used to plan where I would go, just according to if there would be big enough parking places for me to get the car into. And it used a lot of gas, and and it was just I was getting so sick of it. And then in the car accident, it saved our life. It was such a big take. (laughs) Even though this truck hit it at 50 miles per hour, the windshield cracked and the left headlight broke, and there's this little dent, you know, and the other car just, you know, went like an accordion, but our car looked like nothing had hardly happened. Uh, and I just thought about afterwards how much I'd been complaining about this car. You know, it was, it was, I felt terrible. <laughs> so every morning I would go out and I'd bow. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> It's funny, these teachings, <laughs> how things can change so dramatically. <laughs> Often, a deep respect for the teachings occurs just naturally as the practice deepens. For me, there have been times in sitting where there'd be a feeling of being touched by the universe so deeply and touching the truth so deeply. And that at the end of these sittings, my body would just go over and my forehead would touch the ground. And it was totally natural. There was nothing I had to do or think about or there was like, it just seemed like that's what one did. 
So it's not that one has to force this. At these times, there'd be these tears of gratitude and understanding how this all developed. You know, how did the first bow occur? It came from, you know, this very deep place of understanding and gratitude, touching the earth. It's that that movement of surrender, you know, that total letting go, and a deep gratitude. It just happens. It's a reflection of another birth. It's a reflection of a spiritual birth. And it's being born into the Dharma. It's being born into the truth. And whenever we really, truly die to a moment, and we're really born in that next moment, that's, there's a power of this kind of birth that's, that happens by very deeply letting go of the past, very deeply letting go of the future, and surrendering totally to the moment. There's an understanding that there's no greed or hatred or delusion in that moment, but just a moment of peace and fulfillment. So sometimes we'll bow with no understanding, and some bow, sometimes we might bow with a little faith or understanding, and sometimes we might bow from full understanding. It doesn't matter. It can be expression of a deep understanding of anatta or no understanding. Ultimately, Anjali means that we are being pulled out of our self-centeredness. And by doing it, it's a way of an expression of touching the truth. The truth meaning that we're not separate eyes wandering. You know, that there's this deep interconnection with all of life. The inner bow of the heart basically means an offering. And it means an offering just very simply that we try not to hurt each other and ourselves, and we try to understand things. The practice just kind of boils down to those two things, trying not to hurt each other and ourselves, and trying to understand things. It's very beautiful and simple. So I'd like to end with a Barry Lopez quotation because that's how he ended his book and started. And I do think we tend to have a different way of bowing in the West, and it's okay. This is the end of the book Arctic Dreams. I looked out over the Bering Sea and brought my hands folded to the breast of my parka and bowed from the waist deeply toward the north, that great strait filled with life, the ice, and the water. I held the bow to the pale sulfur sky at the northern rim of the earth. I held the bow until my back ached, and my mind was emptied of its categories and designs, its plans and its speculations. I bowed before the simple evidence of this moment of my life in a tangible place in the earth that was beautiful. I bowed again deeply toward the north 
and was full of appreciation for all that I had seen. Let's sit for a few minutes. <clears throat> 